now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. In episode nine of the Forensic Advancement season, Just Science interviews Ramit Plushnik Masti, Director of Communications for the Houston Forensic Science Center, concerning the role of transparency in the forensics community. Complete transparency is a rare concept in the forensics and law enforcement communities, but for Ramit Plushnik Masti and the Houston Forensic Science Center, it is standard procedure. Through her antidotes and experience, listen as Ramit Plushtakmasti discusses the cultivation of trust and the value of transparency in this installment of Just Science. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here is your host, Dr. John Morgan. Welcome to Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals. I'm your host, John Morgan, with RTI's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence, a program of the National Institute of Justice. And we have a guest today on Just Science, uh, Ms. Ramit Plushtik-Masti. She is the Director of Communications for the Houston Forensic Science Center. She has the good fortune, we'll say, working for Peter Stout, who is a former RTI person. And we're very uh, happy to see uh, Peter go on to uh, bigger and better things at the Houston Forensic Science Center. And Ramit is in charge of executing what is, uh, I characterize it as radical transparency approach to public communications based on HFSE crises, but also with respect to all of the operations. Welcome to Just Science, Ramit. Thank you, thank you for having me. So you did a workshop earlier this week about crisis management in the forensic science laboratory. And that is something I think every crime laboratory faces on an ongoing basis. If you haven't faced a crisis, then you haven't run a crime laboratory. And you're just waiting for the crisis to happen. It's gonna happen because like everywhere, people make mistakes and forensic scientists do too. Anyway, this is very fundamental. I mean, there's a bunch of folks, Jody Wolf is one, but others as well. It's just like, it isn't that you're going to not have errors. You have to have an acceptance of that and a culture in which errors are permissible and it's a learning experience and it's a way in which you get better next time. Absolutely, and I think probably what we've been doing at, in Houston is by being transparent externally, you're encouraging your people to be transparent internally. You're encouraging them to own up to their mistakes. You're encouraging them to know that, you know, we're aware that a mistake is going to happen, that everybody makes them, but it's how you handle that mistake that is going to make you different, right? Sure. So you have to embrace it, own it, learn from it, share it. The more we share it externally as well, the more the community learns from each other. Hey, look, they made that mistake. If we do what they did to correct the mistake, maybe we won't repeat that one. So it has benefits internally and externally. And our people now know, I think, that they're not gonna get binged for the mistake. They'll get binged if they don't come up and, and say they made it. So it's interesting because policing in general does not have a tradition of transparency. And to the extent that forensic science has been within law enforcement, that culture has certainly been in forensic science, you know, trying to 
not be transparent because it'll be used against you kind of thing or you'll, you'll be telling criminal stuff you shouldn't tell them or whatever else the reason would be. I, I agree. I mean, I think law enforcement, they have chosen to not be transparent. They have often, when asked about different things, relied on this idea that, oh, well, it's under investigation, so we can't share the information with you. And in fact, one of the examples that I often use for why that is actually not a good approach is Ferguson, Missouri. That story lasted for days and days and days and days and days, and the riots went on for days and days. And I would argue that that was in part because by failing to answer the media's question, which was very basic, really, who is this police officer? What video do you have that shows the event that you can share with us? They continued that cycle the media cycle, which feeds the rioting cycle, which, and it's a never ending, and there's of course many other elements that, that go into that, but that is certainly one of it. And then on the flip side of that, the Harris County Sheriff's Office recently had an incident where an officer shot and killed an unarmed black man who had his pants down, okay? I mean, clearly not a threat to anyone. He was cracked out on something, his pants were at his ankles, he was not going to harm anybody, and he was shot and killed. The contrast there was that the Harris County Sheriff's Office, Sheriff Ed Gonzalez, within 48 hours of the incident, released the dash cam video, went out to the media, and said, I am doing this because I want to be transparent, gave them enough information about the officer, like how many years veteran he was, and all of this information, that the name wasn't an issue at that point. They didn't ask for it. They had what they needed to tell their story. And then the name was released when the guy was terminated. Mm -hmm. Once the investigation was complete, there was no rioting. The story lasted 48 hours and ended. They came back to it when the guy was terminated for an hour, and it was done. Big contrast. So I think law enforcement is starting to learn it as well. Sure. Of course, the other part of it is fear, right? Because you have an incident like that or any kind of incident within the criminal justice system. And a lot of folks don't know what they should share, what they shouldn't share, and, and how to say it in a way that's going to come across well. Having a really good PIO is kind of important. Uh, yeah. Messaging is key. And knowing how to say something is hugely important. And going out ahead of time is terrifying when you've never done it before. But the benefit of doing it is that you do get to tell your story in your words, under your terms, and control that message, make sure it's consistent. And I was just, in fact, talking to somebody a few minutes ago, one of the biggest advantages you have is that you get to drive the story forward, okay? So yes, a mistake was made, but the most important thing you did was fix it, mm. right? You changed something in your protocol, you changed something in your process to make sure that you don't repeat that mistake. Ideally, in the perfect world, that's the story. And so when you go out ahead of time, you can make sure that that becomes the story. And we did that very early on with a case. The outcome of the case occurred shortly after the Houston Forensic Science Center took over forensic operations from the Houston Police Department. The actual mistake occurred just before that transition. And the mistake involved a police officer who, um, he had a, two alcohol samples. One was a breath test and one was a blood alcohol sample. 
and he had swapped the names. So when he submitted the blood sample to the toxicology unit for analysis, the name associated with it was the name that should have been on the breathalyzer. Right. The analyst caught the mistake and started corresponding with the officer who had requested the test, and he was supposed to correct it. That did not occur before a second analyst who was unaware of that conversation came by, included that sample in the batch with the wrong name, ran it through, issued a report, and sent it out with the wrong name associated with the test. The manager of the section at that time caught the mistake pretty quickly, pulled that report back. For whatever reason, proper communication with the DA's office did not occur. And when that case came up for trial, the DA couldn't find the test. Case was dismissed, and what you ended up with was a three-time alleged drunk driver having a case dismissed in what was now a felony offense because of this screw-up. And the second you have the screw-up of that nature, it raises a very large range of questions. Because you have the one case in question, which is tragic, right? You have somebody who's a danger on the road. Right. But it also is like, where are your procedures? How are any of the cases that you're doing, either the breath or blood alcohol, accurate if you can't even get the right name on a key case? And that was exactly the kind of question that came up here, right? A complaint was made to the Texas Forensic Science Commission, and simultaneously, once that complaint was made to the, the commission, HFSC requested that the city's Office of Inspector General do its own investigation at the same time. And that investigation centered around were there proper procedures in place in that unit. Um, and of course, HFSC's quality division was already investigating. Many changes were made along the way before the final reports were even issued. And probably the most significant change was that it, it became policy 100%. If any evidence is submitted incorrectly, it does not even stay with us. Mm -hmm. It is immediately rejected, sent back to the submitting agency. We don't touch it until you correct it. Right. And that's been a huge difference in policy, but we had corrected it. We wanted to make sure that that story about our correction, the fact that we were pretty confident a mistake like this cannot happen again. We wanted that story out there. But we also needed to own the fact that we made a mistake. Mm -hmm. And so when the Forensic Science Commission issued its report, we issued a news release that said, while the investigations by the Texas Forensic Science Commission and the Office of Inspector General reached somewhat different conclusions, there are at least two indisputable facts. HFSC made a mistake that should and could have been avoided. And the second statement we made was that laboratories are staffed by people and mistakes will occur. The question is always how mistakes are addressed and what lessons are learned. I think that we went out on a limb here, right? We were taking a big risk in the forensic community by saying, oh, we make mistakes and we admit them. But <laughs> the stories were fair. Sure. And the story itself lasted in the paper just for one day. And that's always my goal. There's going to be a story, we know that, but let's have it just be for a day. Let's not have to do this for six months. And most importantly, the lead of the story included the fact that we had changed our policies and procedures. Right to correct the mistake, and that was huge. We and, told our story. And the defense bar actually, well, through the Innocence Project, is saying, hey, this is great, all right? This is what we're looking for. We don't expect everything to be perfect. We expect you to be able to admit when you make a mistake and do the proper corrective action. Exactly. 
And the Innocence Project has used that news release as an example for how you should do things, which surprised me. I mean, when this happened, I had just left journalism and just joined HFSC. All I did was say, oh, no, 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 if we want to make this right, this is what we have to do. And I said that because I know that as a journalist, if you don't tell me this and I find it out by myself, I am never going to leave you alone because I will never believe that you don't have other mistakes lurking behind there. Right. And if I start looking, I will find them. So, Vermeet, taking a step back here a little bit in terms of how you all approach this, I've worked with a couple of uh, folks over the years who help with crisis management in the commercial sector and that kind of thing. And the other piece of advice that they will say is, and that is, have a plan. You know, have a feeling for like, these are the kinds of things that can happen. These are the kinds of ways in which we're going to pull together the response and deal with it so that whether we're in front of the story or not, we're at least with it. <laughs> you know, and so how do you all plan or prepare for crises of this sort? So I will tell you that one of the most crucial things in the preparation for crises in general is that Peter and I have a good relationship based on trust. And that relationship is crucial because it means that he can come tell me before something hits the fan that it is percolating. And I need to know because A, if it leaks to the media and I get cold called and I didn't know, the worst thing is me getting caught with my pants down, right? But it also means that I can already start thinking about how we need to address it, what we can do to minimize the damage. And then we have ongoing conversation about what we're going to do, how we're going to do it, the steps we're going to take, when is the staff going to be notified, when is the media going to be notified, do we need to tell our stakeholders in advance, do we just tell them that we're going to be going out with it, or do we share the news release with them ahead of time. There's all these different pieces that come together in that. And we will spend sometimes several days, depending on you know how much time we have, talking about the ins and outs of it. Of course, the board of directors, in our case, also needs to be involved. And so there's all these other conversations that are going on. But we had an incident just before our previous CEO left where it was leaked to the media on Thanksgiving, on the eve of Thanksgiving, <laughs> that because of a budget crisis in the city, we might have to do layoffs. Mm -hmm. I mean, the timing of this was horrible, right? Right. But it's also a leak. And the staff don't know. And I get a phone call from the media that this was leaked to them, and what do we do? And my first thought immediately was, we have to tell the staff before they see it on the news. Because mm -hmm. you can't really do anything worse than that to your people, right? Sure. I mean, and especially on Thanksgiving. Yeah. And so we had to quickly come together. Our CEO at the time was on vacation, so it was on Peter. He had to do something. And if I recall correctly, because it's been a couple of years now, Peter put out an email before the story went out telling the staff that they were going to see this on the news tonight, that there was not as much truth to it as was going to appear on the news, that yes, the budget situation is not great, but we are not planning layoffs at this time. And then immediately when we came back from the Thanksgiving break, there was an all-staff meeting and it was addressed. But think about all the planning that goes into that, sure. right? Mm -hmm. And what you want to avoid is a situation like that where you're scrambling. Exactly how is HFSE structured? Because it's certainly more independent than the old HPD crime laboratory was. Well, there's no doubt about that, right? Because we're not part of the police department. We're not quite private. We're not quite government. We're someplace in, in between. 
-hmm. I call it quasi-government. We are a local government corporation, so that is a quirk in Texas Transportation Code. Okay. It was created actually for Houston's metro system so that they could be a government, quote unquote, agency, but still make money to some degree and be independent of the city and everything so that they could be more flexible than city is. Okay. Well, okay. that's actually, that structure isn't, there's a lot of parks authorities, exactly. sewage authorities, transportation. Th that structure is yeah. not at all unusual. Everybody yeah. has something along that line. But what is there any other thing in forensic science like it? Uh, that I'm not sure of because okay. what actually makes the structure of the local government corporation in Texas a little different is that these local government corporations are overseen by boards of directors. Mm -hmm. And so that board structure is a little different because each one of them can have different responsibilities. And in our case, that board has fiduciary responsibility. So that means that Peter Stout, our CEO and president, cannot be fired by the mayor of Houston. In fact, he answers to the board of directors. And that gives us a layer of insulation from, from politics mm -hmm. to some degree. And then to protect the board a little bit, because the board is appointed by the mayor and confirmed by city council, there is a situation in place in our bylaws that say the mayor can only get rid of a board member if they commit a felony crime. And even then, city council has to approve that. So when the new mayor comes into office, just, you know, get rid of that board and bring in a new one, which has been an issue with other boards and commissions in the past. They truly are isolated from some of it that. It has staggered terms, I assume, and things of that nature. Chairwoman has, well, we have a chairwoman right now, three-year terms, and I think everybody else has two-year terms, and they are staggered. Okay. So to what extent do you think that gives you the ability to do this better than a lab that is either inside a police department or inside some other kind of more traditional agency? I don't know if better would be the word that I would use. I would say that we are doing things a little differently and that is because the structure allows us to, right? Mm -hmm. So we have a little bit more flexibility in terms of procurement, hiring, right, our HR. We have more flexibility in our budget, right? We don't have to go through a municipal approval process to buy a GC mass spec. We just say we need a GC mass spec because it is above, the cost of that is probably higher than Peter's signing authority, which I think is like 200 or 250. We have to get approved by the board, but the board believes Peter, who's the scientist, and so they will approve that, and then we just go put out a bid and we buy the GC mass spec. Much simpler. Sure. Much less bureaucratic. Hiring. We have a budget that we get from the city of Houston to provide forensic services to the police department, to the city's police department. They're not telling us how to spend that money. We decide that we need to hire 10 people in the DNA section this year because those are the resources we need. So do you have a, uh, something that's like a contract with the, the agencies that you serve, or how does that work? So with uh, the city of Houston, we have an interlocal agreement which allows us to do this work for them. And mm -hmm. under that interlocal agreement, yes, you know, we provide them forensic services. They provide us the money for it. Sure. Are you all a foresight lab? Do we provide data to Foresight? We yeah. do. How do you determine how much you charge for your services and that kind of thing? Okay, yeah. so for the city of Houston at the moment, we are not fee-for-service. There is a budget. It is based on, in part, the previous Crime Lab's budget. It has changed minimally over the past four years. 
-hmm. We have been able to grow. Okay, so when we took over, I want to say there were between 130 and 140 staff. Nearly all of them were either HPD officers or City of Houston civilians. We now have a couple of dozen City of Houston civilians left and I think maybe four or five officers. Okay. None of them are in the crime scene unit. They're all in administrative functions. And most of our growth has been because by eliminating those positions, we've saved 40% per person. Sure. And that's just benefits and pension that we're saving because we have traditional government-style 401ks and there is no pension. Right. 40% per person. That's yeah. a lot of money. Yeah. So now we're close to 200 staff. Oh, okay. So we've grown quite a bit, but the budget has stayed almost the same. Here and there, we've gotten a little extra because of different things that have come up, growth in certain areas and requests, but not, not a big budget increase. Let's explore that in terms of this crisis communication. So what you have is an influx of a lot of new folks, I assume younger folks in general? Largely, yes. Yeah, and so you're pounding away at this idea of like, we're a transparent organization. We're an organization that you all are doing the blind proficiency test. We are doing very the blind. unique. Right. And this is just a whole new day. And so it really is an unusual place to work. And is, is part of how you deal with crisis is kind of putting in a culture here in the laboratory? Yes. I mean, you are changing the culture, right? And one of the things that I think we also benefit from is because of this structure, we do control our message. We don't have to get permission from the police department or from the city to put out a news release. We just do it because we think that's right. If it's a bad one and they might be impacted, of course we tell them. We talk about it, we prepare things. Sometimes we have joint news conferences. You know, there's all different ways we handle it, but they can't tell us not to. It's a huge difference. And it changes the culture internally because they know, the folks that work at HFSC know that we're gonna do things differently, that we're gonna think outside that box, that we're going to be out on a limb. And mm -hmm. I think that a lot of them are really proud of that. Sure. You know, they take ownership over the fact that we're not going to be the same as all the other crime labs, and maybe they've worked in some of them, you know, and they want to think outside the box. So they come with great ideas. They're young. They're innovative themselves. I think it's a good atmosphere. So the other thing that's unusual is that you're under the Texas Forensic Science Commission, which is very unique in the country as well, although getting less so. I think uh, states are starting to past new, like the Massachusetts Commission is very much modeled against the uh, Texas one. Right. And the Michigan legislature is considering something very similar as well. How does the Texas Commission view how Houston is uh, doing business? And in particular, you know, it's complementary to the idea of the commission, but it also is like you're out in front of the commission in some ways. Well, I think our commission is actually pretty progressive as well. I mean, we welcome their insight. We think that they do a really good job of holding crime labs accountable. Mm -hmm. We want to be held accountable because we also want to hold our people accountable. And we want the community to hold us accountable because we've already seen what happens when a crime lab is not doing the right thing for the community. So I would call it a pretty good relationship with the TFSC in the sense that when we disclose something to them and if they have questions and if they want to come down and investigate something, we're opening the doors. We want them to come down. We want to work with them on a solution. We are required to disclose to them anything that is disclosable to Brady for sure, but maybe even beyond that, you know, just 
if you made a mistake that required you to pull back a report, it is almost certain going to be a disclosure to TFSC in that case. We had our crime scene unit. We had done an audit. We knew there were problems there, and we found that one, he was an HPD officer, actually, who was working as a crime scene investigator because what we inherited from HPD was a completely classified unit for crime scene. And we found that this officer had made 65 mistakes in 80 or so cases. That's a big fraction. That's almost all of them. Yes. And the mistakes were significant. It was leaving behind bloody evidence. It was, in one case, a victim with socks on. Next to the victim is a bloody footprint, and there is a broken window. And the bloody footprint, while appears in a photograph, is never measured, is never swabbed. Nothing is done with the bloody footprint. So clearly a... How was the person trained? Pre-HFSC. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. And we did provide training to this officer, just was not working, clearly. Sure. We obviously had to pull him off of casework, and in fact, he was being sent back to the police department to be a policeman, which is what he needed to be. And this incident was the trigger for us to go all civilian. Our crime scene unit right now is all civilian, but we did need to disclose this to the TFSC. And the initial outcome from that was to form a committee to investigate alongside the commission crime scene units across Texas to see how, as a state, we could improve how we do this function. That has been put on hold a little bit because of some grant funding issues and resource issues, but that is how we want to work with them. It's we, a direction as much as it is anything else. It's a it is. This is where you're heading. Yes. Period. And as a community, I mean, don't we want to improve? Mm -hmm. And don't we want to learn together from each other? And the commission can be that vehicle. Mm -hmm. So that's what we've seen. I raise this a little bit, too, in the sense that transparency is great, right? And it does create a culture. But wow, is it a risk? Because that means everything that may not even be a mistake, right? I mean, it's, or, you know, it might be a mistake, but it's just like, yeah, so I misspelled mistake, you know? I mean, can become a story. Potentially. But sometimes you also know that when you put something out, it's kind of a non-event. So you've done your obligation. You've told them. But you know ahead of time they're not going to care. It just doesn't rise to the level. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes I'll just look at something and I'll say, look, this might be something we have to disclose to the commission, but just forget it. This one doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. It's not even a blip on the radar. Sometimes it's something so complicated. And we had one, I think, in toxicology where it was like this whole thing with a chemical that should have been in place. I mean, it was so confusing. Nobody's going to understand this. And the bottom line was it affected zero cases. Houston. So that's not news. Now, one of the things here is that You've been a reporter, you've been on the other side of this media dichotomy, and Houston is a large enough lab where it's like, you can hire Ramit, <laughs> right? How cool is that, right? But most labs aren't going to be able to do that. So how are they going to be able to develop the sophistication necessary to be able to make those judgments, to be able to take what is a great theory for Houston, but is it applicable in my lab, which just can't hire you? Right. And I mean, that's, and I think a lot of labs are also working through their police department's public information offices, right? And mm -hmm. so they're doing it much differently. And that does create its own set of issues. I think training helps you a lot. Are you ever going to have the journalist instincts that I have after doing it for 20 years? No, unlikely. You think so differently than I do. Just like I can't walk into the DNA lab and even begin to understand really what's done there. But the training helps you. 
and it helps you begin to understand what's making the other side tick. And so I think that the people that did the workshop this week, it just makes you think from a different perspective. Mm -hmm. And that's the start, right? That helps take you a, a long way. Similar to, I can now tell you that DNA is a three-pronged process, right? I learned that from talking to DNA analysts. Still can't go in the lab and do it, but I understand it. And that's the beginning of it. Sure. So, so you can just learn some of it. Well, and yeah, and starting from the principles of it. Transparency is key, and transparency buys you time. I think that's really kind of like, if, if you understand some of these aspects of it, it helps a lot. Tell us, for example, how does transparency buy you time? So I used uh, that comment to explain that story that I, I discussed with you earlier about the Harris County Sheriff's Office. By releasing the dash cam video mm -hmm. and providing them just a little bit information about that officer, the media had a story to tell and he had enough time to complete his investigation without releasing that officer's name. He bought himself the time. Right. And more importantly, he had the media's trust. He had come to them with this information. They did not need to ask for it. They did not need to beg for it. He gave it to them and he assured them, when my investigation is complete, I will give you that information as well. And he did. There's trust. When you have transparency and you're giving a little bit of the information and you know there's more to come, you have the time to complete that, that other part of the process while everybody's just waiting. Well, yeah, and I think it's important to understand that from just the dynamics of it, the social and psychological dynamics of it, because it's very important when you have a crisis like that to be able to get the media their story, yes, for where it's at right now, but also to have your own breathing room because the outcome of that investigation could have been across a very wide spectrum, okay? It could be this particular incident was either justified or not justified. It could also be that this incident is part of a larger pattern that you don't know about. And it's very important not to do a knee-jerk reaction in how you act. And so if, if you're not buying that time in a smart way, you're not going to be able to act appropriately either. Exactly. And that's what we're trying to do. Also, in doing that, you buy yourself time and you develop trust. Mm -hmm. You get credibility with the media. And whatever you may think of the media, and I'm completely aware of the fact that we are living in a political world right now where it is hot button issue is what the media is or does. No matter what you think of them, that is your probably most direct largest way to communicate with your biggest, most important stakeholder, and that is the community. And today it's all instantaneous too, it's right? Exactly. If you're not out front, you're going to be left behind exactly. in the dust. Yeah. So when you build trust and credibility with the media, you're in essence building it with the community. And that's key. You have to have the community's trust. Right. to do your job well and to know that they will go to jury duty and believe that the science that's presented on the stand is something that they can trust to be accurate or if anything right just balanced fair objective it's just science um, thank you for, thank you for saying there there's your plug <laughs> you know but that this is what you're going for right and mm -hmm. so the media becomes your outlet for doing that the more you're transparent, the more time they give you. When you tell them, don't worry, I'll get you that information, they believe you. Sure. Well, yeah, and they'll see that in a different light because there's two extremes, right? There's one where we're going to circle the wagons and you're never going to hear from us again, right, is what it comes down to. And the other, it's like, oh, this guy's a problem. I'm throwing him overboard, throwing him to the sharks. 
Uh, neither one is an appropriate response, and it'll be transparent that you're not giving a an appropriate response, right? It's the wrong yeah. kind of transparent. Exactly. No, there's there's a way to do things, right? I mean, you know, there are people who get let go from a job that it's, it has nothing to do with the science. That's not news. That's not something you need to tell the media. And there are the people who have been terminated from a job in a forensic lab because something they did touched directly to the science. And you have to tell the media because that story is disclosable to the Texas Forensic Science Commission in our case, but it's a Brady. That's a Brady notification. You need to tell the DA's office about that. The DA's office is going to notify the public defender's office. The name of that person is going to be in the Brady notification that is made. The defense bar can very easily, and often does, release that information to the media. You're better off telling that story on your own. We had an instance just very recently, earlier this year in January, where um, unfortunately an audio video analyst shredded an original case notes. The analyst had been specifically told that when she went back to the scene to correct some administrative errors on her report, that she was to upload both the original and the corrected case notes into the limbs file, the case report, and instead chose to shred that original case notes. Okay. We had to go out with that story because if they had found out any other way, right, it's never the mistake. It's always the cover-up. And so we did. We went out with it. And this is four years after, you know, we, we became the, the managers of the forensic operations. And whereas four years ago that would have been a huge story that lasted for six months, in January 2018 when we went out with it, the defense bar came out and praised us for our transparency, sure. saying we were doing everything exactly the way we should be doing it. That's a big difference. Now the defense bar is trusting us. The media on their nightly news, the reporter and the anchor had a conversation about how we came forward with this news and praised us for the transparency. And the story died that night. It's the way you want it. So the next issue here, and I, what I'd like to spend the last few minutes of the podcast talking about is the whole idea of training. For PIO or whatever passes for that within your crime laboratory, right? Not everybody has the luxury of uh, PIO even, let alone somebody with your background. We've done the workshop this week. You did that, and thank you so much for that. How can we try to bring the forensic community up on this? How can we build this message and build the training in this area? It's very difficult. So the training, I mean, I built my training based on just what I thought would be most appropriate. And I think that all media people do this a little differently. What I do is I provide scenarios that most of them come from our lab. And I've got a plethora of them. But some of them I find online, right? Things that have happened in other labs that have really become crazy incidents. And when, when my group comes in, the first thing that I do is I let them go on camera and I play the reporter and I ask the questions and they go in and they answer the questions based on the scenario they're given. And then we look at it. And there is no better teacher than seeing yourself on camera. Mm -hmm. It is uncomfortable. Nobody likes the way they look. I hate the way I mm -hmm. look on camera. But we do things that we don't think about. We make facial expressions. We stonewall with our body language. You know, we look away. We do all these things, and only on camera can you see it. And so we look at it, and as a group, and I do this with our folks internally as well, we train our managers and our supervisors and our directors to do media training, and it's helpful for when you have to present. It's helpful in a lot of different ways, even maybe for when you testify. Sure. Okay? And so after we go through that, then I run them through a PowerPoint where I show them 
sort of some examples of how we've done this, why we do this, the outcome, how it's been for us. I give them some tips on what to wear on camera, what not to wear on camera. And then we go and we do another round on camera. So when I did this at NIST, I had so many people in the group that I had to divide them. Mm -hmm. So half did the morning camera and half did the afternoon ideally, which is what I did with the group here. I like to have the same people. You do it twice. What you see is the difference. How much better you do in the afternoon the second time you do it. Because you've learned, you've seen, you now understand, you're thinking about some of those things. Sure. That's really what people come away with. And I do it for our group at Houston, I do it two hours every day for four days mm -hmm. because it's so intense. I don't have the opportunity and the luxury to do that here, but that's how I do my training. Right. And I'm sure that there's lots of consultants out there who do something similar. Well, yeah, we come across this issue a lot in terms of leadership and management training within the forensic science community. And part of what ASCLAD and the National Forensic Science Academy have signed on to is the idea of understanding crisis management and being able to be up to speed on this because very few crime laboratory supervisors, managers, directors have any background in any of this. And so they really need to have a conscious effort to try to develop their skills in this area. Yeah, and I'm happy to come talk to folks all the time. Mm -hmm. If for no other reason, because I think it's really important that the sooner we learn how to do this properly, the sooner we can get out the good news. Mm -hmm. Because the community's doing so much good. Oh, yeah. And it's improving so drastically. And the conversation is changing so quickly that the more we can start to accept and be transparent with the negatives, the more we'll be able to get out those good stories. Sure. And that's really what you want. I know that our folks, our sort of motto slogan is the right answer at the right time. That's what we want to provide the community, is an accurate result in a timely fashion. And so when I do our quarterly newsletters and our intranet sites, and I do external newsletters as well, I always have an example of the right answer at the right time, a case that we got the right answer to the police or to the DAs or to whomever needed it in such a timely manner that we assisted in that investigation. And they love it. They eat it up. These are the stories our people want to see. And the community wants to see it, too. So the better you can handle your crisis, the more easily you can tell the good news, too. Well, I've been going to forensic science conferences for 14, 15 years now, I guess. And, and I noticed there's been a transformation even during that time just in terms of the attitudes that people have towards their profession and the improvements that have been put into place and the commitment to continue to improve uh, accreditation and quality assurance and how they present themselves to the public and the science that they use and the, the way in which they train people and prepare people to be able to be the best forensic scientists they can be. There's been a lot of really great progress in forensic science. I've seen a transformation in the four years that I've been in this because when I first got in, I know that I was viewed very warily. I think HFSC was viewed very warily and I think I'm not saying that everybody, you know, is viewing us in a positive light. I think there's probably still people who are wary of what we're doing and how we're doing it and how we're formed and our structure. But I think we're starting to get a little bit more interest. Mm -hmm. And people are coming around to the idea that, you know, this might not be the perfect system for their state or for their lab, but that there are things that they can borrow from and adapt and adopt and... Sure. We might adapt and adopt from them as well. Wary is a good word for it, but Houston is out front on some things in terms of how you're doing things, and people are like watching, see how it goes for you. And I certainly wish uh, you and Peter uh, extremely <laughs> well on that. Ramit Plushnik-Masti, 
thank you for being on Just Science Day and sharing a great, great message and some experience that you have that's very unique. And thank you for having me. Also, folks at home, thank you so much, or on your drive or wherever you are listening to Just Science, thank you for listening in today. Please make sure to go on to the platform that you use for downloading Just Science and give us lots of stars and give us lots of good reviews and tell your friends and colleagues about Just Science and the other deliverables from Forensic Technology Center of Excellence to improve the profession in general. Thank you so much for listening today. In the next episode, Just Science interviews Dr. Peter Stout as he continues the conversation on transparency and discusses DNA proficiency testing in the Houston Forensic Sciences Center. If you have an interesting case and would like to be a guest on our next season, which will be recorded at the 2019 ASCLAD Symposium, please visit our podcast landing page at ForensicsCOE.org forward slash Just Science Podcast. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding. 